Welcome to That Mom Life. I'm Sarah Jordan, and I am excited to be joined today by Susie Eastman. She is a Louisville native, but is known around the country, probably more than that, because you have done so much in the film industry, which I love the fact that you are from Louisville. But as I was reading your bio, Susie, you have done so much. Oh, well, I I have a few years behind me now, 41. So yes, I've had about 20 years in the film industry and have absolutely loved it. Have you spent your entire career in the film industry? Um, pretty much. I mean, that was also even like my my hobby when I was younger. I had a giant camcorder I'd run around with with my best friend when I was a teenager, and then um, you know got my master's in producing for television and film, and then just stayed in the industry after that. When I was young, my parents used to laugh at me because I used to like set up my Barbies and stuffed animals and do fake Academy Award speeches in front of the mirror. Oh yeah. That sounds so brand. I love that. Good for you. You needed to get your practice in. I did. That's what I wanted to do. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I even like in middle school or not middle school, grade school, I was writing my English papers about wanting to be the next Diane Sawyer because she was from here. So I love how sometimes like even tracing back to like youngest early childhood memories. I mean, even with what you just said, it's funny how that aligns with what you're currently doing now. Seriously. I mean, there were times where I was like, I want to be a marine biologist because I don't know why, but I feel like that's kind of like (laughs) the generic what every kid wants to be at some point in time. I don't know. It seems like everybody flirts with that at some point. And um, mine was always like, I want to be... I want to be a news anchor. I want to be in broadcast journalism. And so I moved to New York for my freshman year of college and got into broadcast journalism courses and then was like, and I mean this, no offense to your beautiful industry at all, but I was like, oh, wait, no, actually I'm too, I don't want to say wild, but like I have too much of my own like unique voice that I want to put behind this as an artist to go into broadcast journalism, because obviously, you know, you need to represent a brand when you're a broadcast journalist. And when you're an artist, you're kind of like, wait, I'm a little unhinged and I need to just represent me. And that's when I realized, okay, I need to go more the film route than the broadcast journalism route. Well, I had a similar, well, slightly similar experience when I went to school for broad, uh, for radio and TV. I didn't, I didn't think of radio ever. I was, again, I was on the path to be the next Diane Sawyer. Mm-hmm. And when I actually was in a freshman in college, I was like, wait a second, I have to wear what? I have to read a teleprompter. I have to talk about terrible things going on in the world. I was like, yeah, that's not me. Um, <laughs> I would much rather wear my jeans, talk into a microphone and be myself as a brand and stay away from the terrible, hard hitting news because I realized very quickly that was not me. It takes a very unique, special individual. And I totally respect those people, but that wasn't me. Yes. Oh, I totally respect them as well. We need them. But yes, that's, that was not me. And it's great. The sooner we can figure that out and anybody on their journey in life, the sooner you can figure out whose journey you are on and what you want it to be comprised of, the better and the more quickly engaged you can get into creating the life you want. Exactly. Exactly. I just had that uh, discussion with one of my cousins who's a freshman at college. And he has, of course, the the favorite question you get asked from when you're literally kindergartner on, what do you want to be when you grow up? He's like, I don't know the answer to this question, but I have to pick a major. What do I do? And he was basing his majors based on salaries. And I was like, dude, if you base your major on salary, you will not find happiness. Therefore, you will not find money in a career. I was like, find something you enjoy doing and you'll find the hustle to make it happen. <laughs> Absolutely. The money, like my, that was always my mom's you know, mantra as I was growing up is like, follow your heart 
heart and then the paychecks will follow. If you're, if you're doing what your heart loves and what your spirit loves, then you will have the drive and the interest that then makes it so that you get paid for what you're doing. And thank God exactly. she was right because my God, she wasn't. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what I tried. That's what I told him. And I need to follow up with him because that was about a month ago. And I need to make sure he landed on that, not being like, I'm going to go do this. But I, I, I don't like the sound of the job, but I like the money. And I was like, oh, let's learn lessons now. So we're winding back just a little bit more. So you did grow up in the Louisville area. I did. I grew up in Oldham County Prospect, um, went out uh, to schools out there and lived right along the river, which was just great because it was a really idyllic childhood just to be able to run around until like the streetlights turned on and play and be just totally imaginative and safe. Um, and for that, I'm incredibly privileged and appreciative. Um, and so it really fostered a sense of uh, of place in the world and safety and security from which I always called that my anchor from which I could, you know, kind of roam about the world. And so having a sense of place of where I came from has always been really huge. And when I left Louisville, um, it was great to always know that I could come back to Louisville. I totally agree with that. Having that anchor, I, I growing up, m me and my best friends were neighbors. We would play hide and go seek outside in the summertime. Everyone would come sledding in the wintertime. Everyone just like ran amok and rode bikes as far as we could go and played in the creek. It was such a foundation. Yes. For who I am now. I had three best guy friends and we, I don't want to say caused a lot of trouble because we weren't bad kids, but we had like a three person slingshot and we would have like, <laughs> we would put snowballs with rocks in them. And I think one time it hit a windshield and like I ran away, all of us ran away. And of course the three guys took the fall for it. And here I am like, um, hi, I actually was a part of it, but nobody ever blamed anything on me. You know, and I was like, I sometimes would be the ringleader for some of the, um, misguided journeys that we would go on, but it was very cool to have like three brothers of sorts that were my same exact age, um, all lived very close to me. And it was just a, one of those moments in time in which I'm very, very thankful for. Are you still friends with those guys? I am. One of them is uh, exists pretty much under the radar because he's really high up in the military. Um, one of them lives in Southern Indiana and I talk to him occasionally. And then the other one is right here locally. And we, we message each other all the time. We've been buddies since we were eight years old. I love that. I always ask people when they've moved around a lot, when they don't have that foundation of having like childhood friends, I just can't imagine not having that mm -hmm. and how that would affect, I guess they would just probably just look at friendships in a different way. Absolutely. And I mean, I have friends from when like, for instance, my freshman year of college, I only lived in New York for one year. I still have, I would say five five or seven really, really good lifelong friends that I made in that one year. And so I think it just really depends on your personality and how you connect with people. Because I don't think necessarily, I always felt like, okay, wherever I live when my daughter is a kindergartner is where I'm going to live for her entire education. And I was talking to somebody about that at um, one point, and they were like, well, is that what you wanted? Or is that what you, you think she needs? Or how, why do you think that that's the reality? And I was like, well, that's because that's what I had. And actually, when I dig down more deeply into it, it's like, no, you know what, we all have different traits that come out in our personality and in our survival skills based on our childhoods. So I think no matter where we live or how long we're in a place, she will develop different skill sets, whether we're there for a year or 18 of them. I completely agree with you. And um, 
I love that you talk about that you had best guy friends versus like you're breaking the mold. You didn't just have to have girlfriends. You had guy friends and you and I were talking ahead of time. You essentially grew up somewhat of an only child because your other siblings were so much older, correct? Exactly. So I refer to them as the first litter. My dad, I have an older dad who I often refer to as my grandpa dad um, because my dad had me at 47 and his other, I mean, when I say litter, I mean, I actually love my siblings, but it's just kind of, they, they were like four kids born in under four years. And I'm like, good grief. That's a lot of pups in the house. Um, I'm like, that is not how I would have done it. Um, but Did you say four kids in four years. Yeah. 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 Basically, I'm one of three within four years. I get it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So they're a super tight knit little crew, love them beyond words. And they're so doting on me, but they're like 20 years older than I am. So I didn't grow up in the house with them. And so it's very weird because on one side, I'm my dad's baby and I have siblings who sometimes, yeah, I say they're like my aunts, but they're not my aunts. They're, I have fun with my siblings, right? They're not trying to parent me. I have a great time with them and always have. And then on the other side, I'm my mom's only. And um, it's just really a unique uh, place to be because I have siblings when I want them. And I'm an only child when well, a lot of times it does, it, it did feel, I, when I want to say isolating, I never felt lonely as a kid because my imagination was like off, <laughs> off the charts. I'd be like, I need to have a radio show tonight. And I put on a radio show by myself. <laughs> like it wasn't lonely at all. I, I'm, in fact, sometimes when people say that they're bored, I think to myself, I have never been bored in my entire life. And so that is where being an only child kind of paid off for me is that like I had to make my own entertainment at times. Once the lights, you know, went out on the, went out on the streets, I'd have to come back in. And then it's like, well, I had a couple hours to play. Was I going to sit there and look at the wall or was I going to engage and and create? And that's what I did. So you, Grew up in Oldham County. And then I know that your parents were, as opposed to being like, stay around here, go over here, go over here. They encouraged you to really spread your wings and get away from this area, correct? Dude, they like booted me out. (laughs) It was not even, it wasn't like a, hey, we think it'd be great if you went away. It was a college is only paid for if you go to New York City. Like, I mean, (gasps) tell me that that isn't, like, what do you do in that case? And now it wasn't a huge, crazy risk that they were taking because I wasn't like an A plus student. I wasn't going to be going to Columbia or NYU. Like this wasn't going to be some like 40000 or $50,000 a year school. Um, so they weren't being like crazy risky, but I went to the city university of New York. I went to Hunter college, which was like, I think like 6,000 a year at that time out of state. It was amazing. My dorm room was a hundred dollars a month for my own, like 10 by 12 space in the city. And my mom was like, listen, you can always come back to Louisville, but you need to see that the world is, I mean, to be frank, my mom was like, you need to see the world is not white and you can always come back to Louisville, but I need for you to get out of here now. And you need to see how beautiful and diverse the world is. And this is where you're going. And I can't thank her enough. I mean, especially now that I'm a mom, I'm like, holy hell, that was, that was so well thought out that I, I appreciate that so much. She did that for me. Had you been to New York before? Um, ish. I mean, this was about my sophomore year in high school when it really started transpiring and also playing with the camera at home. My parents kind of knew that 
what I was into wasn't going to be accounting. Um, you know, it's like they could see who I was and that it probably was not going to be a track that I could follow here in Louisville, at least at that given time. Where we are now in Louisville in 2020 is a very different place than where we were in the 90s um, in terms of like the arts and the culture and um, the, I don't want to say we didn't have culture, but when you're talking about film, when you're talking about storytelling, um, oh Lord, we had actors yeah. theater, heck yeah, but I wasn't a theater person. I, w- I loved the camera. So I'm being behind it, behind it. So yeah. Behind it. So, so I, when you went to New York, did they th- think of you as like a country girl because you were from Kentucky? I mean, everybody commented how much bread, how much fried chicken I love to make in the in the <laughs> kitchen there of our dorm. Um, they were fascinated by like the, the childhood I had because honestly, I was a, mostly a commuter school. Hunter is mostly a commuter school, but the kids that were in the dorms with me, like they were from the Bronx, they're from Brooklyn, from Queens. They used to like to take me out to like Bed Stuy on the weekends to to meet their family and be like, "Look, I want to show you." Flatbush. I want to show you, you know, the streets where I grew up, and so you can see see my childhood. And I'm so thankful they did that. And I think that there was an element of like we're going to blow this girl's mind, but at the same time, I was raised by parents who curated a childhood for me. Where I mean, I was not spoiled. I didn't get like a whole lot of material things, but my parents always wanted me to read books or to travel to be able to see how big the world was around me. So it was kind of like, ooh, let's blow this country girl's mind and then they would realize like oh actually Kentucky isn't necessarily as country as people perceive especially here in Louisville Um, I was about to say especially here in Louisville I remember I grew up in southern Indiana right across the bridge from Louisville but I went to college in a small town in Indiana which was a primarily commuter school and when I went there I remember my roommate's we're from tiny little farm towns and they called me the city girl. And I was like, I'm the city girl because I'm from Louisville and I've had sushi before. Like (laughs) this is a very weird um, paradigm I'm experiencing. Exactly. So relevant. I, I remember there, there's a magic about New York City. I did not get to go to New York until I was probably 24 mm. was the first time that I went. And it is one of my favorite places in the entire world. It's mm-hmm. energy speaks to me on the deepest level, like happy tears while walking through the city and just figuring things out, not in a cab, not in a subway, just literally walking until I literally have to stop at a short store and buy new shoes because I'm like, I'm going to figure this city out. And the the fact that you get to got to live in a dorm there i'm like oh my god in another lifetime i so would have gone to college in new york oh god it was so much fun sarah but you're like what you're saying is spot on and the thing that really blew my mind when i was 18 is and as much as i love louisville i we can get up in each other's business um and especially some of the smaller towns and collar counties um of the city um, it can feel sometimes small town, but like, oh, very. Who, what are people doing? What are they getting into? And once I got to New York at age 18 and I realized no one gives a shit about what I do, who I am, like I could walk on the street. Nobody cares that I exist. And while that sounds like actually kind of horrifying for some people, it was a hugely empowering to me that I became 
I began creating my own identity without any concern of what other people thought of me because no one cared. So it was like, be whoever you want, wear whatever you want, listen to whatever you want. Nobody here cares because that's why you're part of the diverse tapestry of New York City. Um, and that is where I think, even though I was raised with that dance to the beat of your own drum, once I moved to L, uh, once I moved to New York, it actually officially engaged where I realized, yeah, you know what, this world is really big, and it either doesn't matter what I do or it does matter, but on a totally different scale. The minutia is gone now. So you bring up a good point, because I mean, heck, I live right now in a place where my kids are going to school with the uh, other kids where I know their parents and I went to school with them and everybody knows everybody and knows that they're related to this person and this person owns this land. Like it is that small world. And I totally understand it. So the anonymity of just being like, no one knows and it's fine. Oh, and it's um, great. It's I pretty- still dig that. I still dig the anonymity of big cities. And that, I mean, I lived in LA for 15 years. Again, another city with so many millions of people that my details of how I live my life and what I do and what choices I make, they don't, nobody cares because there's too much other stuff to be worried about. And that's just, I, there's power in that. I dig it. I dig it. So when did you end up in LA? Well, um, I, I came back from Hunter after my first year because I was like, oh, whoa, I might be a little too young. I noticed that I was getting, um, pretty frustrated, kind of dark, um, and like, I would say almost like hardened by living in the city at only 18. And I could tell that this was going to start shaping me in a different way that the gregarious, like I, um, we call it a sense of the ridiculous in my family. We're very like, I'm, I, I, I am serious about some things, but I am also super lighthearted and I could notice I was feeling a little dark living in the city. So it was almost like I was there just a little too early. So I came back here to finish college at UofL. And then when it came time for grad school, I looked at New York, but 9-11 had just happened the year prior. Mm. And I was like, you know what? That's too fresh for me. Um, I had worked on a TV show in New York in the summer of 2001 um, and was actually planning on returning to New York uh, that fall to live, to work on that TV show. And then 9-11 happened and basically the entire um, entertainment industry was impacted with hires. Like your executives were actually just trying to get assistant jobs at that point. It was like anybody was just trying to get a paycheck. Um, And so those of us that were trying to enter the industry right then really didn't have a space or place to go. So I started thinking, okay, what are my options? Okay, I'll look at grad school. But I knew that New York, it was too fresh um, after 9-11 for me to really feel a sense of comfort there. And my family back in the 1800s <laughs> used to live in California. And my what? grandmother, yeah, they, my family were some of the white settlers of San Bernardino. They brought water into the Southern California basin. So I actually have like great, great grandparents buried in Southern California. My grandmother was actually an actress who left LA in the, um, the 30s um, to marry my grandfather in Chicago. So I have a lot of history out in California. And I've been to visit family out there. And I thought, you know what, this could be my time. Why don't I look at grad schools out there? And I did. And it was a perfect fit. And so I went and got my master's degree in producing for television and film at Chapman University in Orange County. What a cool origin story. Most people don't know that detail about their family. I don't know that detail about my family. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. 
incredible. It's pretty cool because, you know, when I um, first moved out there, if I felt homesick, I would actually go to the cemetery where I had two sets of great, great grandparents like that passed in the late 1800s. And I know it's kind of like morbid, but I would actually just kind of lay there on the ground and be like, I am with my ancestors. I am in the place of my ancestors and I am not alone, um, maybe in the current sense, but I'm surrounded by history around me and I'm here to make my own story in this city. And it, it was very grounding for me to do that. So clearly in the film industry, you can think there are so many different facets of it that you can find home, whether it's, I'm going to go produce, like you said, on the TV set, I'm going to produce films, I'm going to do action movies, I'm going to do documentaries. Where did you find your home? Well, I have always like, while I loved playing behind the camera when I was growing up, when I got into grad school, I realized that I really gravitated toward the producing side, which is like the budgets, the, the contracts, the timelines, um, the schedules, the the crew hires. Um, it basically, what, what a producer does is a director has a vision and the producer makes it a reality and they manage the money that goes along with how you make the production come to life. And so a, a director needs a producer and a producer needs a director. And so it was still within the creative sphere of filmmaking, but it was actually much more in kind of the brass tacks, logistics, um, pro project management side of filmmaking. And that's what I really, really loved. So that's what I focused more on. And I still did make my own short films when I was in grad school. And thank God it was not the era of social media and YouTube like it is today, because those projects can't see the light of day. They, I mean, they are so perverse and so dark and so ridiculous that I'm like, thank God people can't see them. Um, Cause I don't want to really like be um, affiliated with some of the things that I made when I was in school. Um, but that's kind of how we all tended to be when we first got cameras, we were like, how gross can we get? How funny can we get? How dark can we get? And it was a really fun time. I called it like a three year summer camp with, with creative people. There were 60 of us in my grade and we all just in my grade, look, I was in grad school. <laughs> My grade. <laughs> we were all like kids, though, playing. It was, we got to play every day. So you're Susie, the producer. Uh -huh. When do you feel like you got your first big break? What was it? Oh, my first big break was straight out of grad school. I got hired um, by a, a guy named Michael Ovitz, and he used to be president of ABC Disney. And he was um, the creator of CAA, Creative Artist Agency, which back at the in the day was the largest uh, the largest talent agency in the world. And so, what happened was with him hiring me right out of grad school, anybody that would look at my resume after he has a, a little bit of a reputation. I won't go into that because I think he's a love of a guy, and I had an amazing time working in his office. Um, but what would happen is people would look at my resume and they would say, "Oh, you worked for him." And you made it through Ovid's boot camp. Like if you did that, then you can work anywhere. And even though I had an amazing time working at his office, that's like the subsequent jobs I got were really related to the fact that I had kind of been vetted by this larger than life entity in the industry. You know, as you know, like, especially with that industry, while so many people think it looks easy, it's not. And it's so much about who you know and being in the right place at the right time. So, I mean, getting your foot in the door with somebody, I mean, that's an instant seal of approval. It's 
insane. I mean, the like the Rick Ross every day I'm hustling, like that would be like that is literally that was my um, alarm. That was my ringtone to wake up because for real, every day I was hustling. And if you don't have an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent who's in the industry, you don't have that in. Like nobody is guaranteed an in whatsoever. Mine, I, mine was just luck of the draw that I managed to have a headhunter that I got connected to who had that job opening that came in and was like, yo, I'm going to send you. They, she did not say, yo, I'm going to send you over there. Um, <laughs> there was no yo involved. Um, I'm going to send you over for this interview and they hired me on the spot. So, I mean, that was literally a fluke and one of those luck of the draw things, but no, it is, it is a hustle every single day. I will say, I am going to stop you on something and say that based on you and who you are, it wasn't luck. I mean, it, you, you have to be you and you clearly had what you needed. Now, maybe luck that you got that meeting at that time, but getting the job on site. That's all you girl. Mm. So, I mean, it goes back to what you and I started with when you're trying to find a job, a career and a passion, you have to hustle for that money. You have to take those meetings, take those opportunities, push yourself, push yourself, push yourself. And hopefully that will reap the rewards you need to obviously survive, but more than survive, but flourish. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you living out in LA and everything like that, like, it's just, it's amazing to know where you started, where you went, finding your way out in LA, because I mean, I think personally, LA is not it, like New York feels like home to me and LA terrifies me just in my very small experiences with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the fact that you can go coast to coast Midwest and make your mark is incredible. So at what point did you decide to take on the documentary that actually it got released in 2019, correct? Yes. Last October it went, um, it is, you can watch it on Amazon on uh, last October. I got distribution and it went on to Amazon then. Um, so I uh, obviously like in LA, you keep your, if you're either working project to project or show to show film to film. Um, or in my case, like I would be working on in the business side. And so in a business um, realm, you're keeping that job more like six months, two years. That's a little bit more of a consistent um, lifestyle and income. I mean, a lot of hours, a lot of insane hours that you're like, Oh my gosh, this really is true. Um, that this is like a 16 hour a day lifestyle over here. Um, so I, was on maybe like my third or fourth job, I was running something called the Humanitas Prize, which was a, 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 an award for writers in film and television. And I was given the incredible opportunity to create a program called New Voices of Humanitas, where I worked with the different studios like NBC, ABC, Fox, um, to have the position to create two pilots each year at each of the studios. And what we would do is we would run the program so that people that were up and coming writers could submit their pilots to us. And a pilot is basically a 30 or 60 minute script for, for a show that's not on the air yet. It's, it's for an idea for a show. It's a concept. So they would submit these scripts to us and we would then say, okay, you know what? I think that this is the one we're going to pitch to Fox and we would pair them with Steve Levitan who created Modern Family. And then we would pitch it to Fox and help them um, get their pilot accepted by Fox. And so it was really cool to be dealing with these incredible showrunners um, with these giant studios. And um, I realized at that point 
that I was helping other people further their career and that I was going to be staying in the sphere of helping other people develop their projects and not having my voice heard. This almost goes right back to the girl who was 18 who realized broadcast journalism. Awesome. Not for me because I'm not actually creating content that has my own voice and my own story behind it. Um, so where this really came from is that in 2012, I, I don't, I don't know about you, but some nights when I'm going to bed, like I hit up Google and I go down the wormhole of like articles and studies and I find things out that like blow my mind right as I'm supposed to be like winding down. And instead I'm like, oh my God, it's 3 a.m. and I am down the wormhole. Um, <laughs> you know, so I discovered a study in 2012 that showed that babies born in the United States are born with over 200 synthetic chemicals in their bodies. And it literally blew my mind. And I went to work the next day, super tired and mentioned it to somebody and they're like, that's insane. That sounds like a movie. Like people need to know about that. Cause in LA, anything that's interesting gets the, mm, that should be a film. <laughs> you know, it's like, not just like, Oh, that should be an article somewhere. It's like, Oh, that should be, that should be a documentary. So for the next like six months or so, anytime I would talk to people about this article and how fascinating it was to me, and about how I wondered if one day I'd have a baby born with 200 chemicals in its body and if there was anything that I could do about it. That's really where my film Overload came from, was me wondering if there was anything that I could do to impact what was in my body and then one day in my future child or children. So at that point, you were still in L.A.? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So when, when during this process did you move back to Louisville? When sleeping on couches in LA got too expensive. Um, uh, yes. So I basically started running with this idea and tried to raise some funds for the film after talking to some different people and saying, okay, yes, I think that this is my story. I do want to tell this. Living in Brentwood, which is on the west side of LA, got too expensive for somebody who was trying to just fundraise, you know five dollars at a time so i started sleeping on couches thanks to some really great friends of mine and at that point i was like oh hell i am really living the artist's life i never imagined that i'd get to the point where i was like my poodle and i are like cuddled up on a lazy boy over in van nuys so like this is insane um so at a certain point, I was waiting in 2014 for the potential of a large uh, donor to come in and i I just really ran out of money. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to Louisville for about four months, see what it's like there, um, see if this this money can come in. And if not, then I've got to rethink things. and I'll come back out to LA and get back into the business side of things. So that's how I got back here in 2014. So you came back there and you then became part of the Louisville Film Society, correct? Yes. So I landed here in like late May of 2014, beginning of August. I... Uh, I was asked if I wanted to volunteer for the upcoming film festival that the Louisville Film Society was putting on. Um, and, you know, it, it had some, uh, there were some kind of production issues they were having with putting on the festival. And I said, hey, why don't I just step up and help put on this festival for you? I'm just kind of cooling my jets here anyway, while I wait to see if this check is coming through. And I had like five weeks time and I put on a pretty amazing festival. I actually programmed all new films 
used my connections at like Sundance and Tribeca to get films programmed and um, kind of pulled it off. And the film society was like, hey, can we hire you to be our first ever executive director, like our first paid executive director? And I was like, yeah, you can do that. And then um, uh, Prince Charles came to Louisville and Christy Brown approached me and said, hey, would you be game to produce Prince Charles' visit to Louisville? It's 1,400 people in seven locations in seven hours. Can you help us put this on? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Um, And then about two weeks into planning Prince Charles' visit, comes a close to six figure check from my donor so that I can begin production on my film. And it was, oh, and also at this time, a tax incentive passed in the state of Kentucky, giving everybody who shot a film here 30% cash back. And I looked at that and I was like, okay, universe, you're like, here's some boxes to check. And we're checking all of them. Stay in Kentucky, shoot this film, run the film society, use this tax incentive and go make your film. So a four month trip back to Kentucky turned into all signs are pointing to stay here. Yeah. You're not just saving money, you're making money. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, getting the donations you need. And now you're looking at making the documentary you've always wanted. Exactly. So, okay, there's two. I'm trying to figure out which one of these things came first. Did you start your documentary and then decide, like, while doing your, like, okay. I know research on you. I'm sorry. I'm being confusing about this. You actually essentially had to become a test subject for your own documentary, correct? Yes. So basically when I would talk to, so there's a, um, a producer named Stephen Nemeth and he did Dogtown and Z boys. Um, and uh, like a bunch of, I, I can't, I, I love it. I'm blanking right now. I'm like people versus Larry Flint was a different person I worked for, but he's done, he's done some pretty freaking cool movies that I've, already forgotten. Sorry, Steven. I'm just that girl. My mind's on other stuff now. Um, now. I'm like, my mind's on my own career, not yours, Steven. Um, so when I met him out in LA after a panel, um, I asked, I told him a little bit about the project and how I was kind of thinking about these chemicals and stuff. And he's like, honestly, I think that you can tell a story that's just like, oh, we've got chemicals everywhere. Or you can actually you know, make this more dynamic and get yourself involved in it since this is your journey anyway. And my dad is one of the Midwest's largest industrial chemical distributors, or he was when he was um, younger. So I have a chemical, like chemicals helped pay for my clothes and for my school and for my life. And now here I am like, oh, I'm full of them. And so will my future kids. So are you. So is everybody who's listening. We're all full of the chemicals that we use through the products we use and the food that we eat. And like, I'm actually a little pissed off about that. And so while I'm not drawn to be in front of the camera, I'm also not opposed to just throwing myself in front of traffic if I need to for the sake of telling a story. And because this is something that I care about so much for my body, for my health, for my journey of becoming a mom, it, there really was no other alternative than saying, okay, it supersize me, meets chemicals. Um, And so I got tested for 119 of the most commonly used chemicals, even though I considered myself to be living a pretty clean life. I mean, I was somewhat aware of the stuff that I was using. And it turns out I was like off the charts for what I was carrying around in my blood. And so that's really the journey of overload is me seeing what is in my body and me saying, okay, look, I don't want to be the girl who kudos to the people that make their own cleaners out of vinegar and they make their own soaps. Like that's awesome. 
not me. It's not me. I, I don't have the time or the interest. I want to go to Target. I want to find something there that I can use at my house. And that's what I did. I went to Target and Sephora. I tried to shop my way around exposure. And it's basically my journey of trying to impact what I carry in my body. So with that being said, so you then, like you said, you tried to remove the own toxins from yourself. You lost like 40 pounds detoxing and getting rid of all of this stuff, which... <laughs> I'm sure was a fun challenge. I mean, yay, you lost weight, but I'm sure at the same time, you were probably not having a lot of quote unquote fun eating or finding things you could use. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I actually, I lost about 15 pounds before we began production and that was just my own choice. I gave up sugar because I'd done a couple test shoots and I'm not, I'm not a vain person. Like I, I look at my body as my vehicle um, for this life. I'm not going to get overly down on myself because I see some lines or I carry some weight or this or that. Like this is my vehicle. I love myself and it's helping me to live a life. However, I did some test shoots in October of 2015. And I was like, what, which out should, outfit should I wear? Like, you know, we all do that. When we're like, oh, we're going to take family photos. Or we're going to do something. Sure. Which is going to make me look the best. And I tried all of them on and I was like, okay, actually there is nothing that is making me feel comfortable about being in front of the camera. Because again, that's not my native space. Right. Like, so I'm like, oh, the tunic, that's not working. Um, the flannel, that's not working. Button down. Mm -mm. Uh, so I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to give up sugar. So I lost 15 pounds before we started shooting. And then over the course of shooting the film, I lost an additional 25. And you can actually scroll, like scrub through the film and you can see me be, be a little bit larger in the beginning and then, and then lose the weight in it. And it's four years later, the weight's still still off. I mean, I do live a pretty clean life, but yeah, it was not, um, particularly easy. Some of the things were easy to change shampoos, conditioners, soaps, whatever. That's pretty easy. Some of the hair products were frustrating. Some of like the foundations were a little chalky and it's like, I used to be a makeup artist. I can't look like my skin's coming off. Yeah. Like, this is not a good look. So there were some frustrations, but the cool thing is um, for the average person, you can really just do it one product at a time. Like, Oh, I'm out of foundation. I'm going to find a replacement. You don't have to do the overhaul that I did as part of the film. Um, but the cool thing is that I actually was able to impact my exposure and um, now I just know what to buy. So it's not a pain because now I know what to use. So while you were going through this, what, what started it was that 2012 article about babies being born with this. You realized that your own biological clock was ticking and you knew that becoming a mom was also on your to-do list. Yeah, I mean, here's, this is like not exactly what to say on like a mommy podcast, but like I've never been like, oh my gosh, I love children. Like kids are my world. I love elderly people. <laughs> like I love older people. I want to hear the stories. I want to, I, I'm, I love just like sitting and listening and kids. I just, I was an only child. So I don't have, I never had kids that were like running around that were younger than I was around me. So I don't know very much about them, but what I do know is like, I love my family and I love our traditions and I love my ancestors. And I wanted to be able to have a child that I would look at and say, Oh my gosh, you are my grandmother. You are my grandfather living here. And I get to teach you 
you know, the way so that you can create the life that you want. And, and there was something just really beautifully romantic about the notion of procreation to me. So um, what was ironic as hell is that I started on this journey because I was like, I want to have um, the healthiest child possible. And then at some point along the way, maybe a year or two into the project, I had my like annual and I was always testing my my fertility, my hormones, because I just always wanted to kind of have a, a, a check on that every year. So I could kind of keep track of while I was on my journey out, out in LA doing my career thing, just so I could keep my eye on that. And it actually turns out that I was incredibly infertile. Um, my mom even used the word barren once. And I was like, if you could never use that word again, please. Um, I'm like, I didn't have eggs. And it then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm making this film. And like, I don't even have eggs in my body. Like why, not why am I doing this, but it just kind of changed my focus for a minute to be like, holy hell, like I'm doing this film and I want to be a better and healthier me, but I might not even be able to have children. So, you know, that became a huge alarm for me. And um, through my film, I actually went to the Cleveland Clinic. So the first 30 days um, in my film, I basically try to shop my way around exposure because a lot of chemicals actually just go in and out of our bodies in a few hours to a few days. But there are some chemicals that stay with us for more like seven to 10 years, like nonstick surfaces and flame retardants that are in our Christmas trees, ironically. Um, and so I was like, how do I move some of these bigger chemicals out? And the Cleveland Clinic was like, we'll put you on a detox so we can actually see if your body can shake up and get out some of those chemicals that normally take seven to 10 years in a shorter period of time. And ironically, they also used the same detox that I was on for people looking to get pregnant. So, oh, yeah. Uh, thank you. So it was very interesting to me that I basically went from infertile at the start of, of my journey to going through the 30 days, then going through the detox. And then I went to go visit my gynecologist at the end of my film. And it turns out that I had regained insane, like incredible fertility um, through what I had done in just that 60 days of my film. And I mean, like, that's huge to me. So um, yeah, that's the kind of the miracle is like, yes, I'm really proud of my film. I'm really thankful that I made my film and I'm, th I'm hopeful that it can inspire other people to live a cleaner life. But at the same time, I actually went from infertile to pregnant while I was in post-production. And to me, that's the miracle. When I look at my daughter, when I look at my child, I think, thank you, overload, because you helped me make this baby right here. You, I mean, you talk about blending your work life and your personal life. Your mm. personal life was your work life. 100%. And I mean, to be able to make the choice of, you know what? I'm at the point in my life where I want kids. I know that fertility is an issue. You did something about it. And then you were able to change it is absolutely incredible. <laughs> and I mean, your daughter, do you pronounce it Irie? Irie. Mm -hmm. And how old is she now? Um, she's 20, I guess uh, it's, it's funny. Cause I just, uh, when she turned two, I was like, yeah, I just get to call her two now, but we all know that now she's 27 months, right? Like <laughs> until she gets, I guess, 36 months until she's three. I, I still do feel like I, she's, she's two, but she's 27 months and she's, she's awesome. 
So um, while you were pregnant, and again, I was reading an article about you, you made the conscious decision that your mom was going to help you co-parent. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if I, if you don't mind me backing up for a second, I was out. Please back up. I would like to talk about your pregnancy in general. <laughs> I'm like, well, let me tell you about getting pregnant. Um, so not the details, but some of the details. So uh, backing up in January 2018, I was in LA and I'd raised a few extra funds for a finishing editor. And finishing editors are hella expensive. Um, we're talking like $2,500 to $5,000 a week. So you need to be like in that room, in the zone for like two or three weeks so that you can finish this film as like, it, as, get it through the, the finish line as quickly as possible. And so I'm out there and that's when I had had my annual and my gynecologist said to me, yo, you have lost 70% of your eggs in the last year. I need you to try and get pregnant in eight days. Now, keep in mind, I have lived between Louisville and LA for the last four years at this point in time, um, running the film society, shooting my film. And I would say almost 50, 50 between LA and Louisville. And that is not conducive to a partnership. So I, I was not with anybody at that point in time. Um, in a serious capacity where it'd be like, let's make a baby. So um, she's like, you ovulate in 10 days. So in eight days, I need you trying to get pregnant. And I'm like, wait, yo, we've been talking about this for a few years. And you're going to give me an eight day heads up. Like, what is that? And I'm like, and I am finishing my first feature film, which aka means there's not a ton of money in the bank just sitting there like this is I have no partner. I have like, very, very menial um, <laughs> savings account. Like this is not, this is not prime time. And so I was like, how about in October when I'm done with the film? And she's like, yeah, no, 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 you, you can't do that. I said, okay, how about end of May after Derby's over? Because, you know, we're all, we always plan our year. Oh, sure. Derby. And she looks at me and she goes, Susie, you cannot barter with biology. And I'm telling you, that I don't want you to miss your window and this is time. So if you want to, if you want to try and have a baby, you have a less than 2% chance of getting pregnant each time you try. So I think you need to start in eight days. So I left the office like <laughs> shaking and I called my mom and I was like, Hey, so I just got some news um, that I wasn't ready for. And my mom was like, look, I always wanted to have more kids than just you. And your dad had obviously already had his litter. So having more was, you know, off the, uh, not, not in our plans. So I'd be game to help you raise this babe. Like I love babies. I loved being a mommy, um, for current tense. She does love being a mommy, but meaning to a, to a baby. And she's like, I've got energy. I run my own business so I can make my own schedule. Like, let's do this. Let's do this. And I'm like, are you for real? And she's like, let's go half on a baby. I will help you raise this child. Let's do this for our family. And I was like, all right. So I, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that you want this detail, but I reached out to a friend of mine and I was like, hey, can you fly to LA and get me pregnant in eight days? And he was like, yeah, sure. So that's how that happened. And because of my film, and I stand, I stand behind saying this to you as God is my witness, because of my film at age 38, I was able to go from previously infertile to pregnant on my first time trying at age 38 with no medication, no hormones, my body was primed and ready to make my child. 
So strains question. You said if you were, I wasn't sure if I would want that detail. Your did was it? I guess it's not really relative. Your friend helped you. Yeah. <laughs> so you will you were able to get pregnant and a less than two percent chance. Yep. All because of your film of I changing your lifestyle in a very small amount of time, honestly. Oh, it was. I mean, forty. I had forty two hours that he flew to L.A. So I mean, the thing is that I. I am a huge tracker of ovulation. So I can always tell you like, these are, these are my 48 hours, right? Like I can tell you when it's egg, I call it egg drop soup. Um, So I can tell you when I'm about to ovulate. So I know those 48 hours and I had always tracked them because I just always like to, to know my own, my own, my own flow, my own calendar anyway. Um, And that was, that's just something I like to be in touch with myself and my, my own, uh, why am I, th- why am I blinking? What's the 28 days? What's that called? Um, your, your ovulation cycle. Thank you. Yes. I like to be in touch with my own cycle. So, um, I knew when it was coming up. And so I was like, okay, can you come to LA for this period of time? And he was like, sure. So literally he had a ticket to be in LA for 42 hours and I made my kid in 42 hours. Look at you go. Um, you know what? You want to talk about producing. Um, that was one of those times where I'm like, and here's your flight and this is your pickup and this is this. And th- you want to talk about creating timelines and budgets and. Uh... <laughs> was it, oh God. Is it? I feel like I'm going to ask you questions off record later. <laughs> Honestly, anything is on the record. I don't. Is it the old fashioned way or do you use science? And basically like put this in this cup. Science is expensive. Science is not conducive to a filmmaker budget. Um, no, so, I was going to say the science way is very expensive. Yeah. And also science is a delayed period of time because if you have a friend and you're like, Hey, will you be a sperm donor? And you use what's called like IUI, which is where yeah. they basically like extract it and then put it in you. Yeah. If you go to a company, they generally want to test. They want to look at motility, how fast they swim the health of the person. So they're not like, Oh, we're going to take this person with an STD and actually put it in you. They have to make sure it's clean. It's like, thousands of dollars. Oh yeah. And, um, so no, no, we were old fashioned way, but there is a, um, we actually had, there's a contract that we signed. Um, we went to a notary at Chase bank, which PS and by the way, you want to talk about like the most hilarious moment of like sitting there in front of the notary and the notary is reading the contract and they're like, Oh my God, this is what I'm signing. And we're both there in like our beanies. I have on like yoga pants with palm trees on them. He has on a Star Wars shirt and like a Budweiser beanie. And we're there signing this contract. That's like, yeah, I'm giving her my sperm. Um, cool. All right. We're going to go down to the beach for a little bit. Thanks for signing our contract. Have a good day. Like what the hell? Like, I mean, just, oh my God. One of those moments in time. What a good friend, like a great friend. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, like most dudes have said, it's really not the worst thing in the world to be like, could you just come and pound it out for 42 hours in LA and maybe go to the beach and eat some good food in between? It's really not that bad. <laughs> you know, this is a very strange correlation. Have you seen The Office? Uh, I, yes. I don't know which specific episode, but which one? You're almost reminding me of like when the notary is present, like with Angela and Dwight, when they're making the contract to make a baby, like literally that's what this is reminding me of in a very strange way. (laughs) Yeah. That's basically how it went down. So you're pregnant. 
you it happened on the first try which is incredible against all odds i mean how you're making the movie know? i'm in like i'm with an, a finishing editor and i say oh hey by the way i can't come in friday because i need to try to make a baby this weekend i'll be back on monday and she's like okay this is insane who is this person i'm working with so i come back on monday and it was basically four days later i started having this metal taste in my mouth and i'd, I'd be working with her and i'm like i made a sandwich to have and i was like i don't want the sandwich i'm like four Four days after ovulation and I'm and I, I even messaged my doctor and I'm like hey I feel weird and she goes no you know what you are you are imaginative like I love you stay focused on your your film I'm telling you I love you but there is really no chance that you're pregnant right now like just stay focused and I'm like I feel weird you guys so day six or seven after ovulation, so we're talking like seven days before my missed period, I grabbed some of those cheapy strips off of Amazon and I peed on one and I got a faint line six days before my missed period. Like I got pregnant so fast. I was, I was knockered up so fast and I was so thankful, but my poor editor was like, holy shit. Can I just tell you, I've never been on an adventure where I was hired for two weeks and literally I start editing a girl gets pregnant and a girl tests pregnant. Like I've just watched your entire life happen while I'm finishing your film. And I'm like, I know, I know I've, I'm here for it too. I mean, but what a cool story. And she'll probably, she'll always remember you clearly. Oh yeah. What's um, different? <laughs> yeah. Of course you are because she was part of your life during a very, very special time. So, okay. You then get pregnant and then which obviously your close family and friends didn't even know what was going on in the sense of, cause you found out you had eight days until you had to make this happen. So then you find out, yep, I'm pregnant. And then beyond that, you then have to, you're now dealing with the pregnancy and your body changing and all this stuff. But then after 30 weeks, you notice something starts shifting. Yeah. So I actually, obviously, like my finishing edit was done back in January, February of 2018. After your final edit, then in like March, April, I'm working on doing the final audio for it. I have um, composers doing music for it. So it's like, it's a very stretched out journey. You don't think that like a film still takes that much time after you're done editing, but it takes months. So during this time, I'm like, I actually felt other than like a few hiccups, I felt amazing while I was pregnant. I worked out every single day. I stayed lean except for this like cute little baby bump. I like, I, I, I had a great pregnancy. And, um, in August I finally finished my film and I had a screening for the donors or I now have to like change that word. Um, like for film donors, because now I have multiple types of donors in my life. Um, so my film donors and people that were my crew, I had a screening for them in the middle of August, 2018. And then a week later I was like returning some things to UPS that had come for my, um, had come from, from my registry. And as I was like taking them into UPS, I kind of see my heartbeat in my eyes. Like, it's almost like everything like had kind of like, yeah. And I'm like, Hey, I'm not at a dance party. What's going on. Um, so I walked over to Kroger and like hit up one of their like little arm cuffs and it went like up to like the, the red zone for my blood pressure. And I go over to the little clinic and I'm like, Hey, you guys, I think there's something wrong with your arm cuff. It, I think it's broken. Would you mind taking 
checking my blood pressure. And because of course the thing's broken, nothing's wrong with me. I'm like, I'm having a perfect pregnancy. What are you talking about? Um, and they did the cuff and the woman goes, I'm going to say this really calmly, but I suggest that you immediately get to an ER. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's some, that's some shit. So I went to the ER and it turns out I went from working out the day before and feeling amazing into hardcore preeclampsia that then went to organ failure that then went to throat and brain swelling. And I almost passed away having my babe. Were you in a coma? I was not in a coma. Um, thankfully they got the baby out fast enough. It was uh, my brain swelling and like throat swelling happened in the final seven hours. Um, I have rods in my back, so I was always going to be a general anesthesia C-section. Um, but in that last day I had eaten one bite of banana, like for God's sake, if there's anything in my life that I'm like, I wish I had not eaten. It was that bite of banana at 10 AM on September 1st, because they were like, well, now we've got to wait several hours for your stomach to be empty before we can put you under. So we were just waiting and waiting. But at that point, my liver and kidney had already shut down, um, kidneys rather. And so my body was just becoming more and more toxic. And in that seven hours, I, it, it got, it, it got really, really, really grim. It's ugh, well, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I was talking to one of my good friends this morning. She's getting induced tonight. Um, uh -huh. She's terrified. And I was trying to prepare her. And I said, the only thing I can ever tell people, I don't care if it's your first kid, third kid. I know someone getting ready to have their seventh baby and they're 40. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, every baby is different. Yep. Every labor is different. Every pregnancy is different because you never know how your body's going to react. The baby's going to react. And all you have, all you can do is ride it out and trust your doctors and hope to get the help and just with the goal of get the baby out healthy. 100%. So, that was in, in the end, um, you know, we talked about it because my mom was there with me. And it was like, okay, if something should happen to me, the baby goes with her. Um, all I want is for my mom to have a baby when she's going home. It'd be awesome if she has both of her babies. Uh, but I, I need I need this Irie girl to uh, to go home. And so if I'm not going to make it, um, you you make sure that Linda Eastman takes this baby and um, know that I love both of you. I mean, it was intense, um, and I can I can remember parts of it, uh, but it was it, it was not not one of those labor stories where you're like, I had on a beautiful gown and I love oh, five minutes, like whatever people have all their different journeys. And there are also other people that have had hugely traumatic births. And I, I honor everybody's birth story. Um, but I also have had to move past it because while it sucked and it was very scary and I ended up having postpartum depression for close to two years, um, afterwards, because it was really, really scary. And then to go yes. home as a solo parent, no matter how much my mom co-parents with me, you're still I a solo parent, still a solo parent. And, um, there was a lot to process with having made that decision, and to kind of sit in that, especially in the days when she was in the NICU and I came home and I came home without a baby, um, you know, there was just, and there, without a partner here, there was a lot to process. Well, and you had to heal yourself. Oh, I mean, yeah. I think that's one of the, if, especially because of your situation. That's something I, again, told my friend this morning. I said, no one properly preps you for how difficult it is to one, you're now dealing with the word forever and you just gained a tiny human responsibility 
forever, but you need to figure that out while trying to put your body back together. And it's going through, it just transformed for 40 weeks, roughly, but now it's trying to transform back and it is hard. It is painful. It is gory um, and mentally exhausting when you couple the hormones raging on top of the sleep, on top of your brain trying to comprehend the change that you are a mother forever. 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 The thing is, Sarah, I would tell myself if I bought a house and I was like, "Mm, you know what? I kind of wish I didn't buy this house. I could take like the 20K loss and walk away from the house. You get married and you're like, "Mm, probably shouldn't have done that. You can get annulled. You can go divorce. Like when I was, (laughs) when I was fresh, freshy mom, I was like, oh shit. I just committed to something that there are like no take backs on. Now that's not to say I'm not obsessed with my child. That's just to say the reality of like, oh my gosh, did you really process this in that eight day warning? that you had like that you did this I don't care if it's an eight day warning or you tried to get pregnant for years you get so caught up in like look at my cute little baby bump and baby showers and making the nursery I don't think until you have that baby in your arms can your brain actually process I am a mother I remember with my son I was in labor for 30 hours because I tried to go naturally and then blah 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 and then epidural went bad he got stuck it, whatever. Oh, God. At one point I had all these people come up to the hospital and meet him because of course that's what you do after being awake for 30 hours and having your entire private area swollen. You have you have 30 visitors. Well, when everyone finally left and I was by myself with the baby, I remember sobbing because I was like, I've never changed a diaper. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. I do have a loving husband. I have the support of my family, but like at the end of the day, I am a mom forever. My life just changed forever. You can't, no matter how many times people tell you that, you can't comprehend that until you're in that moment for yourself with your child. All the way. And, and, and I, you know, I've never, I had never changed a diaper. I had never bathed a tiny baby. No. And also I was given like, a baby the size of a football. So she weighs four pounds. She weighed four pounds and she's hooked up to all of these IV drips. I'm really stoked that she never was on a ventilator. She never was on a feeding tube and the doctors would come over in NICU and the nurses would like hang their heads over into like our little bay. And they would say like, what did you, what did you eat while you were pregnant? We've never seen a baby who like just doesn't realize that she's not full term. It's, it's like this baby here is just like a four pound full term baby. She's doing all of the other things and hitting the marks. She's just not full term yet. Like she is very strong. And I'm like, it's overload. If I continued what I did in my film the whole time I was pregnant, I ate exceptionally. And now here it is, you know, my babe's two years old, but she came off the preemie charts at three months old, which would technically be, she was one month, you know, when you adjust it, right. she came off the preemie charts and she's hundredth percentile. My baby eats what I ate during overload. My baby is exposed to what cleaners and products I used and I learned about during the film. We live a clean life. It's not a paranoid life. It's just a cleaner life. And so I'm just hugely thankful that when she was in the NICU, those doctors, those nurses, they guided me and showed me how to change diapers. They showed me how to bathe her. They taught me how to be a mom. And so I'm forever indebted to them. And they're my buddies as well. Like we're on Facebook and they love pictures of her and and I am forever indebted to not only the people who saved my life um, when I was giving birth to her, but to the team who taught me how to be a mom in those first couple weeks through NICU. Uh, the doctors and nurses that deliver babies, 
are true heroes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're with you in, for your case, one of the scariest moments of your life, almost losing your life, mm-hmm. but also resulting in one of the most joyous things in your life. So for them to be able to, I mean, I'll, <laughs> mm. I've had the same nurse the last two. I've had, I have three, the last two. Her name's Janet. I don't know anything else other than the fact that her name's Janet and she specializes in natural child labor. And I did that once. The other two, I ended up with epidurals, but either way, Janet was my girl. And I mean, a stranger, a woman that is watching me scream and sob in pain. And I am hugging her with all of my might. And she's holding me while I'm sobbing. She is a stranger. And I'm thinking, this is what you come to work and do every day. <laughs> like, yeah, right? How do you do this? Um, oh, absolutely. I, I love how intertwined your career and your personal life are now. Irie, like you said, is over two years old. Your film has now been out. It is available for people to watch on Amazon. And I know that you said after this came out, you got flooded with all these people wanting to know what you're using, what your recipes are. So as we wrap up, I know you have a website now that people can go and you've, you've compiled it in one single place. Yes. So I, it's just, it's, in its fledgling stages right now, but you're absolutely right. The people would be like, okay, well, what do you use for your hair? What do you use for this? Or what do you buy for your baby? And it's like, to me, I didn't want to create a blog where I'm just doing like, um, simply just for affiliate links of all of the stuff that's out there. To me, I'm just sharing yeah, there are some affiliate links because why not? But it's authentically like, this is what I use in my home. And it's great to have a space where I can just put like the tips, the hacks, the products, the things that I do every day to live a cleaner and greener life. And so I realized that to me, it's not about perfection. It's about progress. So that's why I created the site called cleanergreenerme.com. And that's because it's just about small changes that we can make in our everyday life to be a little bit cleaner, to be a bit greener, to take care of our health and the health of the planet um, without becoming consumed. I don't want to go out and burden other people at their homes or when I go to restaurants. It's about what I'm doing in my own home every day. And if I can try to change, you know, or impact 80% of the actions or products that I purchase or that I do, then what I'm doing is I am positively impacting my life and the health of the planet. And so that's really where I put all that information is on cleanergreenerme.com. And it's also on Instagram and Facebook. So check out the film one more time. I know overload is the short name for it, but it's it's overload America's toxic love story. You can get a direct link to it at overloadfilm.com. Um, so yeah, you can check it out. It's 71 minutes. So easy peasy. And then uh, I try not to inundate you with too much information during the film. It's just basically the journey. It isn't all the product names, all of the details. And that's really why I created this uh, cleaner, greener me is so that people can then go to that, that site and to those, that Instagram and Facebook account to kind of get the toolkit that goes with the film. So you can make some meaningful changes for yourself and your family. So last question, and then I'll run away. Hmm. What's your next play? And by play, I mean your next move. Well, 
I tell you what, first and foremost, like I, I love having been in the film industry. I don't plan on leaving. I don't plan on stopping you know, being a storyteller, but there were so many 16 hour days. There was so much stress in the rat race of working in the film industry out in LA that there's something that's really beautiful about just, I don't want to say slowing down because I don't slow down. I'm literally like go, go, go from the minute I wake up to the time I fall asleep around one or two in the morning. Um, thank God my baby sleeps until nine or nine thirty, because that's awesome. So I get a solid seven or eight hours sleep each night, which I'm very appreciative of. Um, but my next play is really, really enjoying this journey of being a mommy. Um, I'm thankful that I'm a mommy later in life because I'm not giving up any of the experiences um, that I have had in my life and that I am going to have with her. And even on my own as an individual, like I still think it's important to travel on my own, to have rage days and to party. And I love my mom for helping, helping me ensure that like I still have that individual time to myself so I can be the best mom because I'm also the best I can be for myself. And so um, my next move is really, you know, like sinking my teeth into being a mommy. But then also there are some projects that might be springing to life out of overload. And I'm going to be staying in this sphere, I think, of kind of non-toxic mommy world for a little while because this wasn't just a film project to me. It wasn't for hire. This is a lifestyle. This is a commitment I've made to it and it's a journey that I'm on and so I think I'm going to stay here for a little bit longer and probably try to create some content around this this world for a little bit longer. I love that. Obviously it's it's not just your last project, it's your life. It's my life. It's my so, life and I live it every day. And you do. And Susie, you've got such a wonderful story and I am so thankful that our paths have crossed through mutual friends, the film society, the derby parties. Mm -hmm. You are wonderful. You are hilarious. Your story is fantastic. I need you to know that I told Susie and I ahead of time that we're, we were going to run this PG 13. Um, but I appreciate that not on microphone that you and I can <laughs> be the non PG 13 selves that we have, oh um, so that we proud. currently are. We're not, our kids are not in earshot. Right. I'm so, so proud. No F bombs throughout the whole thing. Yay. Yay. It's a success. Yay. It, it's funny, like when you know you're on, because people ask me that all the time, because I, let's be real, of course I cast. But when I have a microphone on, it's like my brain just automatically knows to stop it. And that's just 14 years of training going, don't do it. Uh -huh. um, you lose your job, don't do it. So it's a pretty big reason not to do it. So <laughs> with that being said, Susie, thank you so much. You are wonderful. And I, I'm going to go watch your documentary because now that I have three babies in my house, I need to make sure that I'm creating the healthiest lifestyle for them too. And not only for them, but for me as well. So Susie, go play with your baby. You are amazing. You are wonderful. And thank you for all that you've given back to everyone else. Oh, thank you for the honor of having me on here and asking me these questions and to share my story. I really appreciate you and all the mommies and, and all the people listening. Uh, you know, we, we all can do our best to raise the healthiest family and keep the healthiest planet. So let's all try and do that.